And the computer goes through all of the pieces and it, and then it recreates all the different permutations of how you could put these billions of pieces together. And then it tells the, the virologist, the programmer, which ones got closest. It'll say, okay, I, I put it together and I got like, the computer will say like, I got like 400 different permutations of, uh, of all these little pieces where, where I got over 50% of what you're looking for, right? A lot, something like that along these lines. And then the programmer picks the one that looks the most appealing to him or her and says, that's it. That's the virus. That must be the virus. Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, a podcast where we mostly talk about the environment and our health and how they interact with each other, but also some things that you won't hear in the mainstream media. So let's investigate what else is happening, let's hear some alternate views, and let's make up our own minds. Fair Food Forager. (laughs) Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. (laughs) That sounds like a very good idea. Fair Food Forager. Welcome to another episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, the podcast brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app, the world's only ethical social media and sustainable food directory. So you can use this food directory when you're on the road to find ethical and sustainable food. Cafes, restaurants, farmers, markets, bulk food stores who are reducing the impact on the planet by reducing waste, food waste, plastic waste, finding organics, anything like that and you can also share posts recipes food that you're growing your appreciation of nature your bushwalk your beach cleanup anything that helps each other and the planet on today's podcast i'm talking to michael wallach for part three of the viral delusion where we talk more about his series but we dig down a little bit deeper in the sequencing and how they sequenced in inverted commas, SARS-CoV-2 and how they just used computers, but you'll hear more of that soon. We also talk a little bit about the PCR test and how they come up with variants and how the numbers increase during variants because if you've kind of looked into this scam, you probably wonder how the, the numbers went up and down and really this whole pandemic was driven by numbers. So Michael really breaks down how this happened in something that we can all understand. So I really hope you enjoy part three. It's just a short podcast, about 50 minutes. He's such a legend. He gave me more of his time. His documentary is seven hours. So please scroll down in the show notes or type in theviraldelusion.com and watch his series because it will change your life. I promise. Yeah, 
numerous scientists in other fields began writing to the journals that published these first images, these 2D images of a circle with spikes on it that were claimed to be SARS-CoV-2. And, and they were saying, these are normal pictures. We see these all the time. We saw these way before COVID. We study these in people who don't have coronaviruses. This is, this is just a normal picture of, of, of cell debris after you obliterate a cell. And you must retract this claim that this picture proves that you have found SARS-CoV-2. But there are no retractions. And instead, these little 2D images are picked up on and they're sent to CGI artists who then say, oh, well, if it looks like this in a 2D world, then I think we can imagine it looks like this as a 3D thing. And then, you know, da, 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 da. and it gets all the way to the point where when I'm making my documentary, I can go onto stockphotos.com and put in 3D CGI animation of SARS-CoV-2 and I can pick between like 50 of them. You know, I can <laughs> pick a, a purple one or an orange one and I wanted to like color balance it with the shot before and you know, that's where we are now. And we're at the point where we're like the government has like an Instagram account to like put out its images of SARS-CoV-2 so that like kids and old people and middle everybody can see the, the, the unicorn and be like, it's real. Oh my God, it's there. It's on the cover of time magazine. And it's, and it's worse than that because not only that, but sometimes, well, I'll, there's, it gets even better, but I'll leave it for people who see the documentary. One thing I think about is if they haven't proven COVID because I've seen the documentary now and the sequencing part of how they did it in the final episode just absolutely blows my mind at, at how bad that uh, whole thing was that considering they locked the whole world down for however two years more than two years and they still haven't actually sequenced anything but then they come up with all these variants so it'd be good to hear what your understanding of of that is um, sure. Well, I mean, you have to understand what the, you know, how sequencing uh, or so-called sequencing um, works, because it's actually not even the official um, historic n- meaning of sequencing. What they're doing is not sequencing. So, you know, one of the people that I had a chance to speak with was David Rasnick, um, who's in the documentary, if, if you see it. And um, he's such a lovely human being. He's, a, you know, 30, 40 year 40-year biochemist at this point. I mean, he's in his 70s and he started in his 20s. So 50, 50 years of biochemistry now. Um, and, you know, he ran a he ran the research lab for one of the largest biochemical testing companies in the country. I, I drive by their office sometimes still. Uh, they're they're right, at, right at the side of Austin where I am. And um, and and so he's he's been involved in the in 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 following what they do from a sequencing perspective uh from his days in uh working on on AIDS um and HIV and uh he'll tell you his whole story in the documentary and it's it's really phenomenal but um he's wearing like an african dashiki shirt in the documentary because he's 
just really, really proud and feels affectionate uh, about the time that he spent um, in Africa uh, helping health ministers um, in South Africa, but uh, really throughout Southern Africa, deal with the AIDS crisis in that the, the AIDS crisis uh, in, in that their countries were declared to have widespread AIDS when they didn't. And, and the health ministers had to figure out how to make their way through that mess. Anyway, Raznick explains very clearly that when we hear, oh, they've genetically sequenced um, this virus, what we think of is the same genetic sequencing that, you know, we all heard about, uh, you know, 20 years ago with the Human Genome Project. And they've sequenced, uh, you know, the human genome. They can tell you exactly what the genome of a thing, an animal, an organism is. And um, the, way, the way they do that is they, <laughs> they, they gather all of the uh, DNA and, and then they, they say, this is the genome of this creature. And, they do, 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 do. and, and then they go one by one by one looking at, at um, each of the nucleic acids that's, uh, that's in that genome. And, and then you know, that's in order and they could say, okay, here's the whole genome, but they don't do anything like that in virology. (laughs) It's a totally different game. And once again, it's a linguistic fraud that's perpetrated by saying that they're sequencing something. It's the same linguistic fraud when they say they've isolated something. So we think they're using the common definition of the term isolation, which means that you've isolated the thing from everything else. We, when they say we've isolated a virus, there one thinks, unless you know the the history of virology, that uh, you think they've isolated the virus from from all the rest of the the material that's in the snot, right? But that's not what what they're that's not the way they're actually using the term isolation. What they, what they're uh, if you read the, the language specifically and very carefully, you'll see that what they actually mean by the term isolation is they've isolated the snot from the patient. And then they've simply declared that there's a virus in the snot. They declare that a priori to begin with. They, they, they assume there's a virus in the person. They isolate the snot from the person and then they say they've isolated the virus. But this is, of course, circular reasoning. They've never proven that the virus was in there. They just started with that assumption. So with sequencing, it's the same thing. It's the same sort of linguistic, um, you know, twist. And um, I'm actually reading a fair amount of law right now. And you can see they do this all the time in, in, in the history of, of law and government and all these things. So, you know, I shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, I do have a political science background, so, you know, but, you know, it, it never, it never ceases to amaze me when you get into it. And so with sequencing, what they, they, they're using that word. So people assume the lay reader, even the relatively educated scientific reader will assume that they're doing the same thing in virology that they're doing in the human genome project and, and, and all these other things, but they're not, they're actually in reality doing something called alignment and alignment is a computer driven process in which they create a computer model 
of what they assume, again, to exist. And then once they've created the computer model successfully, they claim that proves that this sequence exists in reality. So that's, again, that's a very short uh, explanation of it. But, you know, it's fun to, it's fun to kind of dig in and, and, and talk about the process by which they do it um, so you can really understand what's going on and how fraudulent it is as a proof, as a proof that you have found a virus. Because that's, that's how it's rolled out. It's rolled out as the new way of proving you have uh, found some novel virus. And, um, you know, it's, nobody's got a problem if people want to play around on their computers and model all sorts of things, you know, (laughs) you can, you know, you can model a song on GarageBand. I don't care. You can model your presumed or theoretical idea of, of a virus all day, but you can't take that model and say, just because you were able to make a model that you actually have proven that something in reality exists. And, and it, it's not even it's not even the the, the sort of critical community that has arisen uh, during um, COVID that has reanalyzed virology that's saying this. In the '90s, when this new computer-driven approach was uh, really taking shape, there there were a number of the old guard virologists that really started putting out warnings and um, they were very upset that all funding was moving from their old laboratory methods, which I would contend and we could are also garbage and, and many, you know, brilliant thinkers have laid out why we could, again, we could talk about it, Uh, but they were, they were upset because even these uncontrolled laboratory methods were certainly more robust than the new computer-driven uh, methods. And so they, they, they really did. They published a number of, of warnings. Uh, Kevin Corbett in London, um, who was, has spoken out uh, quite a lot and done quite a lot of research on that, Kevin was, a, was the author, was one of, I think it was almost 30 authors uh, throughout the medical testing uh, genetics industry um, who spoke out immediately when um, Christian Drosten first claimed that he could uh, create a genetic test for um, SARS-CoV-2 for for the you know claimed uh, alleged COVID virus, and uh, it was I mean they, they immediately were able to put out a major paper uh, calling for the retraction of Christian Drosten's absurd statement, and um, the major magazine Eurosurveillance uh, refused to retract it. And um, of course, Eurosurveillance is, is uh, closely uh, aligned and Drosten is closely aligned with a number of key drug manufacturers in Europe. Um, it, it, it's just, I mean, the whole thing is, they, they call it turtles all the way down where it's just fraud on top of fraud on top of fraud on top of fraud. I don't know where that expression comes from or what I don't, I don't what why we say turtles all the way down, but that's if it, it's I, I think of it as matroshka dolls where you just open up one doll and you think you found the answer in the next one and and no it's 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 just you know you keep looking for where's the reality here and there's there's you know at the end of the game you're you're, you're left with 
you know, a, a, a sort of a, a laughing, you know, Jack in the box in the middle one uh, who's laughing because he's already moved on to the next, you know, crisis. I heard your dismay in the documentary, just like I had the same dismay watching it when they're explaining how they did the human genome and even their own models with the computers can work out a sequence pattern with the human genome because it the blood comes from the human, whereas in their experiment there's all sorts of things stuck in the lungs, all the other th- materials that they that they draw out and put in this thing that they sequence, and then the computer can't even do the calculation. It, it can't create a match or a pattern, so they had to break it down into individual nucleotides. And then from all of that, we end up with the PCR test and a vaccine, and that should really end the story right there. We uh, Everything that just happened... Their own computer model couldn't do the calculation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's just one excuse after another. Um, I mean, it's, it's like every time I talk to you, I want to I want to condense all seven and a half hours of the documentary into into the next sentence. You know, I'm like, I don't know what to say. There's so much fraud. <laughs> it's mind boggling. One of the things they certainly could do is they could say, okay, we think that this uh, is the sequence. In oh, my dog has come to say hi. <laughs> <And> no, <laughs> he's so happy to have found me. They think that. Um, they have this com- this computer going through the uh, genetic material in their sample. Now, a virus is supposed to be about 30,000 nucleotides long. They could just look for the 30,000 nucleotides that they think the, the quote-unquote virus is, right? And they could say, oh, do we see that? But they, they don't do that because they, they never see it. Nobody's ever published, boom, I looked in the the uh the 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 culture and i found it um and so they go through this really harebrained process uh to recreate a sort of uh frankenstein version of uh what they believe exists in in the culture and um god i used to just spew out these um analogies all the time for for what they're doing um but maybe uh Maybe we'll just talk about the the practicalities of it, if you want, the the steps, uh, a few few simple steps that they do, and then we can talk about all the ridiculous metaphors for for how to think about it. So the first thing, they take the the, um, the, the snot from the person, and uh, they put it in a cell culture of monkey kidney cells, and they add uh, antibiotics, and they add fetal bovine serum. And they used to add milk. They don't add milk anymore. That's considered antiquated now. Um, but they they do add uh, a saline solution, and they've already um, used this stuff called Eagle's Transport Medium, which also has antibiotics in it. So there's antibiotics put in twice. And then they put it through a filter, which takes out a big chunk of that stuff, but by no means all of it, okay? And uh, it's kind of like... Uh, it's kind of like if you made it a, a huge, you know, chili and then and then you, you know, and then you put it through like a, you know, like a net in the kitchen. You still have a whole glop of, of stuff in there. Right? You've taken out the big chunks, but you have all sorts of genetic material in this 
mess of a, of a subculture. You've got monkey genetic material and you've got, you know, uh, all sorts of things. Um, then uh, they take that, this, this, the filtered version of it, but you're still talking about billions and billions and billions of pieces of genetic material from all sorts of uh, origins. And they chop that up into tiny little pieces. Um, so if we're talking, if, if you want to say that presumed virus is assumed to be like a, a, a very short book, okay, then, and each nucleotide is like a letter, they chop it into like words, sentences, half sentences, uh, letters, uh, uh, kind of a mix like that. And then... Um, and you're talking about billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of particles. So um, then they tell the computer, we think there's a coronavirus in there. And we think, although we have no proof, that coronaviruses look something like this. And they'll give like an order of of nucleotides. Can you put that together from the billions and pieces, billions of pieces of chopped up nucleotides in this huge soup? And the computer goes through all of the pieces and it, and then it recreates all the different permutations of how you could put these billions of pieces together. And then it tells the, 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 the virologist, the programmer, which ones got closest It'll say, okay, I, I put it together and I got like, the computer will say, like, I got like 400 different um, permutations of, uh, of all these little pieces uh, that were um, where, where I got over 50% of what you're looking for, right? A lot, something like that along these lines. And then um, they, the programmer picks the one that looks... Um, the most appealing to him or her and says, that's it. That's the virus. That must be the virus. And that's it. That's the process. So <laughs> it's, I mean, it's only when you think really deeply about it. I mean, it, it, it literally took me like uh, months and months. Hello, honey. <laughs> My dog is kissing me as we speak. <laughs> uh, it took months for me, for it all to, to, to really, um, settle deeply as to the, the absurdity of it all. We can talk about it in different ways. Um, from a, from like a super high end abstract mathematical way. Um, you know, there's a mathematician, um, in, uh, Switzerland, I believe who published a paper saying, okay, I went through all the calculations that they did with this first guy in Wuhan, right? Because all, every the whole rest of the of the, of the COVID scam is based on the genetic material of uh, essentially one guy in Wuhan, right? This is the guy they did they do the initial um, work uh, on, and he said I went through all the 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 computer database that was um, linked, you know, in the methodology methodology section of that original paper. And I, I asked the computer what else it could put together from this guy's genetic material. And uh, he said what he discovered was that um, the computer the computer could actually give this guy AIDS. So, 
So um, just to go back that this, this mathematician, so this mathematician in, in Switzerland went through all the, the, all of the genetic material that's in the database of what this uh, computer recorded from this first man in, in Wuhan. And he said that he asked the computer what, what other, you know, diseases or what other viruses could this man, could we say existed in this man based on this method? And you could, you could ascribe all sorts of diseases to this man using the alignment method. So uh, he, you could give him AIDS. You could say he had HIV. And you would be far more uh, statistically rigorous than the claim that he had SARS-CoV-2. Uh, you could also give him, I think you could also give him hepatitis. And you would be far more statistically rigorous than the claim that he had SARS-CoV-2. Uh, you could also give him n- numerous other diseases, which, which were right in that same, um, uh, uh, you know, accuracy number. Essentially what they did is they said, can you put together this long string of nucleotides that we think is a coronavirus? And the computer basically came back and it said, no, not really. <laughs> we can't actually. We can we can we can do it like 85% of the way. We can write, we can we he's got about 85% of the snippets that we took to make that long code. And they said, aha. Instead of saying, oh, so he doesn't have a coronavirus, they said, aha, he must have a mutated coronavirus. <laughs> he must have a new form. And that new form will call SARS-CoV-2 because you, it's, it's, it's so wild to, to see the circular reasoning, but you have to remember that the whole field starts with the assumption that the person is sick because of a virus and that the game is simply to find it. Mm. And, and that once you jump on that a-scientific or anti-scientific wheel of reasoning, then you can arrive at any conclusion you want because you've started with it. And uh, it's, it's a game that is just played endlessly. So to, to answer your question that you asked like 20 minutes ago, <laughs> what is a variant? A variant is when you, again, you, you seek to align using a computer method, the nucleotide seek little snippets that you find in a cell culture from a patient, and you cannot find your original sequence of SARS-CoV-2. So then, but you've started with the assumption that the guy had COVID. And then you look in the computer and you cannot recreate anything close to SARS-CoV-2. So then you go, aha, it must have mutated. We have a variant. And then come the testing of the variants and the testing of SARS-CoV-2. And again, it's just turtles all the way down. Once you've started with these unproven assumptions, you can, go, you can just go nuts, <laughs> you know, um, with, with, with lesser versions of them. So it becomes less and less and less rigorous the more you continue uh, down the line when you start PCR testing for these things. So, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into PCR testing and, and, and how that works with the variants and so on, but, you know, happy to do it. Yeah, let's do a little bit because I think 
the PCR test for me, obviously it all begins with a, a fake sequence, but the PCR test really was the pandemic because absolutely most people weren't even sick and they were testing positive. So that's how they kept everyone in fear and everyone was a ticking time bomb because they could infect you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once so once they once in Wuhan they 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 uh, they claim that they have discovered this novel virus, which is you know basically again they've run this computer alignment. They've not been able to uh, achieve a coronavirus. So instead of saying, "Ah, this man doesn't have a virus," or we don't know what's going on, they, they say, "No, we found a new one," because they picked the one that. The, the, the one where the computer could do the best, right? Now, that actually was the second computer program they used. The first computer program gave up in failure. It, it, it outputted back to them, I cannot make any sequences for you that are, are anything possibly close to what you're looking for. Sorry. Now, I can't even build anything at all. Sorry. What did they do? Again, did they declare that this is not a viral issue with this man or that they don't know what's going on or anything like that? No. They went hunting for a new computer program. So they got the, they got the, the, the more, uh, quote-unquote, sophisticated computer program from Johns Hopkins, which is the research institution in the United States that for you know a long time now has been you know, developing out the technical capacity for labs to be able to propagate this uh, nonsense. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like the, it's like uh, industrial light and magic, right? Like all the, mo- all the, all the movie makers, they all work on their different CGI, but you need industrial light and magic to, to build the, the key CGI programming. And no matter how much work CGI does or how many movie makers, you know, make unicorns it doesn't mean that there's unicorns flying around it just means that they've developed software for recreating the image of a unicorn um i I get off on so many tangents i don't but we were talking about pcr so so pcr they so once they put out sequence that they claimed was the sars-cov-2 sequence christian drosten in germany turns around and says, aha, well, if that's the sequence, then what we'll do, and it's 30,000 long, what we'll do is we'll pick a few sections of this theoretical sequence, like three sections of this theoretical sequence, and we'll, we'll PCR test for it, okay? So it's like saying, um, there are three really short sections okay and and then if you test positive for these three short sections of this um theoretical law sequence then we'll say you're positive for covid um now they they they, they've they've still never found the virus they've never proven that this sequence actually exists in reality there's monumental evidence to say it doesn't because they can't find this whole sequence in any actual cell culture or blood or anything like that, there's perfectly good reason to assume that these short little sequences are not unique to this larger sequence, right? Because we've seen that you can take sequences and you can align them to create anything. You can take sequences from somebody to say that they've got AIDS, that they've got hepatitis, that they've got measles, that they've got Ebola, that they, you know, you're building it, right? 
So uh, they, they essentially say if you test positive for these three little tiny snippets, then um, you have SARS-CoV-2 and, and that you're you know, quite possibly infectious and that you're likely to get COVID and all of these things. Now, the way and we can, and then and there's a million problems with the testing process for how they do that. So I mean, you can't every you know it's like every sentence must be unpacked when you talk about this stuff. But the way they then um, tested for the variants, this was every like kind of month or so. I have a new favorite uh, fraud that I discovered. So. Back like a year and a half ago or two years ago, this was one of my favorite frauds, and Mark Bailey pointed it out to me. But I have a new favorite fraud this week that's <laughs> totally different. Um, and so, so the way they tested for Omicron was that they, they, they changed the protocol, and they said, you, you see, with Omicron, we have – this is a different sequence – we are theorizing that this theoretical virus has mutated and it's mutated so much that one of our three snippets no longer works. One of our three snippets will not test positively. So what we're going to do is we're only going to test for two snippets. And so all of a sudden, statistically, you're going to see cases go through the roof. Because you used to test for three little snippets and have a yes, yes, yes on all of them. But now you only have to test for two. Yes, yes. So it's exactly what happened. So they start rolling out tests for Omicron. And not only do they say that, that um, you are positive if you have yes, yes, no. But they go back. I think they backdate some of their other tests and and say, oh, that these previous people must have had Omicron because they had scored yes, yes, no on their three snippet test. <laughs> and I mean, it's just uh, it, it's it's madness. It's just total madness. And I mean, people know, but people know the PCR at this point. Everybody knows the PCR, and you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's an old story. Something that you brought up earlier, and it's it's probably one of the main points that I got from your documentary, and uh, knowing that we don't have much time left, and you've already been amazingly generous in giving me so much time, but what I love about the documentary is it shows how they continually, so what you said before is they've, they say, they assume there is a virus, this is in cases of all other diseases as well, like uh, smallpox and the plague and HIV, they assume there's a virus and then go about systematically ignoring or not even broaching any other possibility. And you show that throughout the documentary and it's your guests in the series have lots of amazing explanations that when I hear them, it makes absolute sense to me that say the first world war would have had an impact on people during the spanish flu for example which they both kind of happen at the same time and sanitation and it would be awesome to hear the story of your wife because i've heard you say talk about that little story and 
that's something that we often overlook. We go to the doctor and we just want that, just tell me what it is. It's this one thing, here's some medication, where quite often there's something that we haven't even considered. But during all these pandemics through history, they've purposely shut down that discussion, avoided it. Like even in the papers that you show in the film, they even say in there, well, we can't, we, like with the Spanish flu, they say uh, we came in assuming that we knew what the cause of the Spanish flu was. After doing these experiments, now we're not so sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 let me tell you the story of my wife, but um, because it really that, that what happened to my wife was really what what launched us on on thinking of issues for the first time ever. Uh, but before I tell that story, I want to tell the story that Jim West tells of SARS SARS one, which is that, and this is just Jim West's. Um, Jim West wrote a, a, a monumental book about polio and has been researching the medical world for like you know, at least 40, 50 years now at this point. Um, and, and, you know, so SARS, apparently, uh, according to Jim, SARS, the original SARS started with a number of people um, in an apartment building on like the 40th floor um, right off of, um, off of an industrial area in China. Um, so I think it was, I think it was in Hong Kong and I think it was right across from, um, I can't remember the name of that industrial, um, huge industrial city right there. And, um, a bunch of people on like the 45th and the 47th and like the 53rd floors got sick with a respiratory illness. And, um, they, uh, again, they, they, and you know, I think a, a small number of them died. And they rushed to assume that this was a new virus that had killed them. This was where all the research money went. They immediately assumed some new virus has killed them, and we're going we're gonna to find out what that virus is, and then we're going to spread absolute panic throughout China that this virus is, is out there, right? What they never considered was that there were huge factories, the biggest in the world, directly across a small bay from this apartment building and that the plumes of smoke would come across the bay and go right into the 45th, 50th floors of this thing and make people sick. And this is where they were living. So that, that was never considered. Instead, they assumed that they had a virus and then because they couldn't figure out a way for that virus to have traveled between these people's homes, they eventually came up with a theory that it was in when they went to the bathroom and they flushed the toilet that that created like a momentum that shot some of it, the virus upwards through the pipes and then out the toilet of the apartment, like four floors above them. And they had this whole, like, totally absurd Kafka-esque, you know, um, pipe virus f- flying theory. And, and you know, it, so as you say, it's just when you just turn the page on this stuff and you actually read it, uh, it's, it's, it's just mind-bogglingly, monumentally um, uh, gibberistic, <laughs> if I can use that phrase. And um, and the, the, the most obvious uh, of ideas is is, um, is is never even considered. Um, but that 
you know, you, to get to the point where you are reading these kinds of things, where you're talking to the people that I'm talking to, you have to be, you have to have gone through something probably. And the thing that, that, that would happen to, to us or to my wife is that, that she, she was 30 years old. Her knees started like bulging up in this really horrible and strange way. And so like one knee would blow up to become like a volleyball and then it would, um, and then it would deflate again, like maybe four or five days later. And then a couple days later, her other knee would swell. And, um, this was causing her tremendous. And after a period of this, it, it began to become quite scary because it didn't seem to be going away. So she went to, uh, rheumatologists in New York city and, you know, the best people that she could find, like, you know, Cornell and Columbia and, you know, all the top medical, you know, institutes. She went to three different rheumatologists in the, and they all told her this exact same thing, which is that she had early onset arthritis. There was nothing they could do, uh, almost certainly genetic. And um, the best that they could do for her was to put her on a regular uh, steroid treatment, which was highly toxic and uh, seriously increased the chances that she was going to die in her 50s. And, um, but that, that, at least that way they could reduce the swelling and that would reduce the pain. She was never going to be able to walk again, really. Um, and that they, they, uh, they said, look, just buy a good cane. Like You're going to need a cane. Buy yourself a good one. That was, that was their advice, all three of them. And I used to have this teaching job halfway across the city, which was hated, and I would have to drive all the way across the city and sit in traffic. But the upside on that was that I listened to this alternative radio show in New York City. And I heard this doctor, and he was so brilliant. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what an unbelievably knowledgeable person this man sounded to me. And... Um, and he had been the chief pathologist at a hospital in New York City, uh, but he had quit because he was so frustrated of care that was um, that he was forced to follow, and that the doctors were following at the hospital. And so he had quit, and he opened up his own private practice. I said to, to my wife, "Listen, why don't we just go see this guy and just see what he has to say? Because it, it, you know, it won't hurt, you know." And she was more than. Um, you know, happy to, to try to find some solution. So she went to see him and he said, are you an athlete? And she said, no, not an athlete. And he said, okay, what does your bathroom look like? And she said, that's the weirdest question, but I hate my bathroom. He said, okay, is the paint peeling on the walls in the corner? And she said, yeah, it is. And he said, okay, look, I'm going to run some tests, but almost certainly you have a mold allergy and you have to get out of your apartment because there's, there's mold in your bathroom and you're having a, a, a reaction to it. And so we got out of that apartment right away within two weeks and it never bothered her again the rest of our lives. And, you know, she's 30 years old. It was and she, for almost a year. She couldn't walk. Uh, and there were, you know, tears in her eyes when she was walking down the street with a cane and all it took was somebody who understands that the environment is 
the most significant, if not the only serious factor, but the, by far the most significant factor in why we become ill. And the environment is the food that we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, the buildings we live in, the, the everything inputting into our bodies, everything around us. And I remember he, doctors, his name is Dr. Majid Ali. He was such a good doctor that even though he's a Pakistani Muslim, he was the doctor to the head Lubavitcher rabbi in New York. So the, 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 the most influential rabbi in New York City goes to a Muslim Pakistani doctor. That's how good this guy is, right? And he, he took, I went in for the second visit with my wife and he took my hand and he took my wife's hand and he said, listen, I want you to think about all of the children that have died in Iraq, all of the, from the sanctions, from the war, from everything, this was back during the, he said that pales in comparison to the Lipitor scam alone. He said, never trust a damn thing you read in the new Enron Journal of Medicine. He was referring to the New England Journal of Medicine. And, uh, and then he hugged us and he said, you know, basically get out of here. I got another patient. And that started us on this extraordinary journal, a journey where uh, we began to, 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 to read the history for ourselves. And when you actually read medical history and you, you read critical medical history, and there's a ton of it, it's like, you know, it's like discovering there's, you know, fireworks in your cereal box. It's just fucking. And you wouldn't think it because I hated science when I was in high school. I thought the whole thing was just a bunch of memorization that didn't make any sense. And when I was making this documentary, one of the things that I did was I, I, I went out and bought the virology, the main virology textbook that they teach at, at, at Columbia. Because I wonder, you know, what are they... What are they teaching? What are they saying? And it's, it's only things to memorize. There's no history there. There's no experimental research. There's, there's nothing but this virus is this sequence. This virus is that sequence. This is how small a virus is. This is our model of this. This is our model of that. There's absolutely no room for intellectual thought, for scientific thought, it's just a prescribed rote set of things that you're to memorize and then procedures for you to follow to continue out this, this doctrine. And, um, you know, I remember that there was even, a, I, think he, I think he meant it as a joke, but he said in there, he wrote, how many viruses can fit on the head of a pin? And he was referencing the old, you know, uh, liturgical question of how many angels could fit on the head of a pin, you know, and he had, of course, an answer, you know, whatever, four and a half, 450 million or whatever, just like they, they had said, oh, four, 450 million could fit, angels could fit on the head of a pin. And it's just so ironic because, you know, it, it was like self-referential, but it was also completely, um, without uh, understanding the context of the, the very field, the very history of the field itself and how it has been built on these assumptions, just like, uh, you know, just, just like the Catholic church or, or, or any particular dogma 
um, that's out there. And with that, I have to go. But Paul, is there is it possible that we can keep talking? I feel terrible that, that, that this was cut short so so fast. I think we we're, we're going to have to have another podcast sometime soon because this, as you say, you've got a seven hour documentary. I think if people have listened up to here, the best thing that they can do is consider that there is often way more out there, way more things to look at than a simple solution of a virus caused everything. So thanks so much uh, for putting in all of your time and making this series. People have got to watch it. It's in the show notes and I've already been sharing it with everyone that I know just about who will listen to me. Get on, watch (laughs) this documentary and realise that things aren't quite what they seem. Uh, But where can people find your work and can they uh, follow you? I I know you've got a Substack. Yeah. Well, the easiest thing to do is to just go to theviraldelusion.com, theviraldelusion.com. And then um, I noticed that Google has started burying it lately. (laughs) Um, So if you try to Google it or, you know, Google the documentary or whatever. So, just go to theviraldelusion.com and, uh, and you can see all the material there. Uh, you can look for me on Substack. I, it's very rare that I actually write anything, but um, I'm going to try to write about my new favorite fraud of the week uh, <laughs> in the next couple of days because um, I've got a new one and it's really cool. So hopefully I can get that uh, out there and uh, we can hopefully uh, we can keep talking as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. I think this is the time and this is an important documentary for people to watch and uh, start thinking differently. So thanks again. Ah, Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Listening to episode 91 of the podcast with Michael Wallach, and I hope you've watched the documentary or at least started watching it, theviraldelusion.com, or you can scroll down in the show notes and there's a link there. It's uh, paradigmshift.uscreen.io or something like that, but it's in the show notes, so you can click there and you'll see the documentary highly recommend you watch it it's eye-opening it's game-changing it'll make you it's part of this whole thing virus mania listening to sam bailey tom cowan andrew kaufman these people it will just change the way you see things because there aren't things trying to attack you health is your responsibility what you eat the environment you're in how stressed you are, how much sleep you're getting, where you're getting your water, your food, all that sort of stuff. So I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Next up, I've got a two-part series with Dr. Mark Bailey where we really get deep in the weeds. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to download the Fair Food Forager app. It's also here to help you find ethical and sustainable food and food that is organic, local, 
supporting small businesses, reduced plastic packaging, anything really to help support you and the planet. And you can share good news stories, learn from each other, and just feel good for a change about the future and what we can do to help each other and the planet. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review it, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. Thanks again to Ash Grunwald. This song is River from the album Now. Until next time, bye. Yeah, the man, the man.